Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you for joining the program today. And thank you to our sponsors, Shem Financial Services, Jumpstart My Brand, Higher Calling Firearms, Connolly and Sons Concrete and American Appliance. Links to these companies can be found in the description. Please, when you need these services, consider them first and thank them for their support of the Tree of Liberty Society. You can also support the Tree of Liberty Society by becoming a member today or becoming an advertising sponsor right at treeoflibertysociety.com. Take advantage of all of the benefits of membership as well as our weekly trainings for members only. I'm Ben McClintock from the Tree of Liberty Society, and we're here to present our presentation on behind the scenes of my book, Invasion, Volume 1, How the Conspiracy Infiltrated Your Community. The reason why I wrote this book and the reason why we focus so much on the fact that there's a conspiracy that is destroying our liberty is that if we don't understand that, we can't actually work to preserve liberty effectively. The prophet Moroni in Ether chapter 8 said, that we need to suffer not that these murderous combinations shall get above us. He also said that he's been commanded to tell us these things, that evil may be done away. Exposing this conspiracy is essential in our efforts to give Satan less influence over our lives and to be able to preserve and promote liberty. You go to treeoflibertysociety.org. This is a companion piece. There's an expansion of our, the presentation that a lot of you probably have already seen on the conspiracy in Utah. Utah being the case study for what we're talking about and how the conspiracy infiltrates communities all over the country and, in fact, all over the world. We are dealing not with the conspiracy theory, but with the conspiracy fact. And there's a lot of great books out there that have come before to help us understand the international conspiracy. A great one was written in the 1790s called Proofs of a Conspiracy by Professor John Robeson. We also have the uh, memoirs illustrating the history of Jacobinism, great important works in understanding this global conspiracy. More modern times, some important books, books that will help us better understand this international conspiracy is None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen, Shadows of Power by James Perloff, and The Naked Capitalist by Cleon Skousen. The Founding Fathers understood this conspiracy. This has been information and understanding that's been poo-pooed and lost to the modern, um, the modern person, the modern learner about what's really going on in the world today. The Founding Fathers read those books, though. They, they read the proofs of a conspiracy. And in letters written to George Washington, he came back and he said, no one is more fully satisfied of this fact, that doctrine of the Illuminati and principles of Jacobinism have spread 
in the United States than I am. So he said, there's nobody more satisfied than this. He's like, yes, I am convinced. I know that this is happening. I understand this. And this is why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And John Adams, he also, he read the book, Proofs of a Conspiracy by Professor Robeson. He wrote a letter to his wife that said that the goal of this conspiracy is to destroy and undermine religion has been the chief engine in the accomplishment of this mighty revolution of the Illuminati. You must read a work lately published called Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All the Religion and Governments of Europe by John Robeson. So what what helped this book to get published that they read and the founding fathers were warning other people about and telling them to read and, and passing out the book to other people? Robeson's book was based on the papers of the Illuminati, founded by a man by the name of Adam Weishaupt. And the Illuminati was formed May 1st, 1776. And then the following year, he started to affiliate his organization with local Masonic lodges. And then in 1782, he took over other European lodges, started to expand his work. And then we see in 1784 uh, that his courier was struck by lightning. So back then, um, you didn't just put a stamp on a letter and mail something, that you had private couriers that would deliver, especially if you were in an organization such as the Illuminati, to take your papers securely and take them somewhere else. And so their courier, carrying their papers from one location to another, he was, I believe, providentially struck by lightning. And so his papers were discovered. And Bulgarian authorities, the fall in 1786, um, raided the Illuminati and Weishaupt retreats. And he feigns, he pretends to repent of the things that he's been doing to undermine religion and to build world government. So... This conspiracy, the conspirators, they have a religious devotion. Um, after the Illuminati was disbanded, they didn't just go away and said, oh my goodness, you know, I just give up now. They just changed their name. They, they form other organizations. And one of those organizations called the Carbonari. And in one of their documents, the Carbonari writes, our final end is the destruction forever of the Christian idea, which if left standing on the ruins of Rome would be the resuscitation of Christianity later on. Okay, so we've got to completely destroy it. Otherwise, if we leave anything left, it'll come back. The work which we have undertaken is not the work of a day, nor of a month, nor of a year. It may last many years, a century perhaps, but in our ranks, the soldier dies and the fight continues. So they recognize that this fight might not can, you know, be, be one in their lifetime. And they're okay with that. They recognize that even if, if they die, that this work continues. And so they have a religious devotion to their efforts to promote this conspiracy. So in writing the book, Invasion, there were several different ways that I was able to uncover data that really hasn't been compiled before. Just, you know, you can't just go on the internet and go to Utah Syriac Combinations or local implementation of, of Syriac Combinations and, and really find a good, uh, you know, Google uh, search result. And so a lot of this stuff is only available in physical form. You have to spend time in university libraries, um, going to the historical society at the, for the state of Utah, church organizations, University of Utah, BYU, Yale, and just tons and tons of physical books that you can't find online. We recognize that we have this global conspiracy, but also that their programs are being implemented on the local level. So how does this happen? 
And that's the thing, that's the trick that even organizations and others that try to organize people to defend liberty against this global conspiracy fail to be able to grasp and understand is this local aspect of the conspiracy. And so we're identifying and we're guarding against those working to destroy our faith and culture. So just like George Washington and, and John Adams understood about the conspiracy, there were others though, like the founding fathers of Utah, like John Taylor, he understood this thing as well. Talking about what was going on, he explained, the scenes which we are now witnessing in this territory are the results of a deep laid and carefully planned conspiracy. And this conspiracy started before we left the United States. John C. Bennett, uh, who was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the late 1830s, he was found out to be a sodomite, to be an abortionist, and just to be involved in all kinds of debauchery. And so he's excommunicated. A few years uh, later, a man by the name of James Strain, he joined the church in about 1843. At the death of the prophet Joseph Smith, he claimed to be the prophet's uh, legal successor to the mantle of prophet. And we discovered at the archives of Yale University letters written to each other where they addressed each other as brothers in the Illuminati. Uh, James Strain says, Receive thou the accolade by which I now create thee in the Illuminati. And later on, we see that James, uh, that joining their efforts to undermine the legitimate authority of Brigham Young was joined by Sidney Rigdon, where they reject the Book of Abraham, they reject the Temple Ordinances, they reject eternal marriage, and they again, they reject Brigham Young. And so they're, they're, these are the beginning efforts to introduce feminism into Mormonism and, and to introduce these things that are anti-family and anti-gospel into Mormonism that we see being um, even more prominent today. And so we, we look even further, we go back to, I mean, we, we go a little bit more forward when we come to Utah and, and uh, John Taylor's talking about this carefully planned conspiracy that is implementing these things that we see. Um, a lot of these things happen from within, right? We've got James Strang, we've got J John C. Bennett, you have all of these people. In Utah, we have a man by the name of William Godby. William Godby was a convert to the church in England. And when he came to the United States, he called himself a Robert Owen Mormon. Now, who is Robert Owen? Robert Owen was the father of modern communism. He was trained by Helena Blavatsky, who started the Lucifer Trust, which changed his name later on to the Lucius Trust, and the Theosophical Society, who is uh, the organization to have the only approved prayer room at the United Nations. And Robert Owen also um, was the one that trained Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, uh, when they were starting to put forth their writings on communism, which later became the Communist Manifesto. And William Godby, when he came here, he wanted to um, expand these things, and he wanted to bring metropolitan, and he wanted to bring uh, globalism and worldlyism into worldliness into the gospel, uh, rejecting the teachings uh, that were going on of building the kingdom of God, of, of united order, and of being independent from the world. And this guy, he, he liked to in, engage in seances, and he was involved. Um... Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, and, and table tapping and mediums to get him to to go along with, with this transfer to and continuing on with the Illuminists of James Strain and John C. Bennett were involved in. And so he was excommunicated from the church for these things in 1869. And then he died April, August 1st, 1902. And in preparing for William Godby's funeral, um, and in a talk that he wrote for the funeral, Heber J. Grant said that he never knew a more generous, bigger hearted or more faithful man. Pretty interesting that this guy who knew the apostles, associated regularly with the apostles, felt that this man that was engaged in uh, Robert Owen Mormonism was the most faithful man that he knew. And a lot of these things we don't know about our history. And George Orwell explained the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And this understanding of our history has been undermined and obliterated. We need to go back and understand these things so that we can take an effective and offensive approach to restoring lost liberty. So there are some key things. There's three key things that the conspiracy fears most, and they work to destroy whenever they're trying to uh, take over a free society and to enslave it. So these things happened in Deseret and what we see now is Utah, but this is how it's done in every free society. Okay. This is what every free society should do is we need to have economic independence. We were taught to not merge with Babylon. Second is we have to have uh, build political in, um, independence. We can't submit to unconstitutional government. And third, build educational independence. We should never, of course, let the enemy educate our children. These are just basic things. And we can see how when we uh, diminish and we get rid of these, these things, how we open ourselves up for enslavement. So these are all following the same principles of natural law. We see um, Moses leading Israel out of Egypt. We see the founding fathers separating themselves uh, from Great Britain and the pioneers coming out west following this same principle that we see in the scriptures. In the book of Nehemiah, we read, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This idea of separation so that we can maintain uh, correct principles is an essential thing and something that all people that had built uh, free societies understood and followed. We look at the pilgrims doing the same thing. They recognized that they could not maintain their values with future generations if they stayed where they were. And so they had to flee and come to a separate place and separate themselves to be able to maintain those principles. This independence, this is something that the founding fathers taught. George Washington's farewell address said, it is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. He knew that when you start to enter these alliances and these agreements with foreign nations, that you lose your political independence, your separation. We see in the Doctrine and Covenants section 133, the Lord says the same thing, that we are supposed to keep ourselves separate. We read, Go ye out of Babylon, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Yea, verily I say unto you again, the time has come when the voice of the Lord is unto you. 
Go ye out of Babylon. Go ye out from among the nations, even from Babylon, from the midst of wickedness, which is spiritual Babylon. So we've been told over and over again to separate ourselves from those that will separate us from God and God's laws. Economic independence is the same way. Brigham Young helped us to understand this key principle to help us to maintain this independence when he said, we do not intend to have any trade or commerce with the Gentile world. For so long as we buy of them, we are in a degree dependent upon them. If you are, this is such a, I think a foreign principle to so many of us, this idea that if somebody else is if we're dependent on somebody else for providing us something that we depend on and that we need for our sustenance, we are dependent upon them in any degree that if they say, if you don't do X, then I won't sell this to you anymore. So it's essential, economically speaking, to be able to maintain uh, correct principles, to maintain liberty, that we have economic independence, that uh, people of like mind are able to come together and to be able to produce things that we need together. Brigham Young continues, the kingdom of God cannot rise independent of the Gentile nations until we produce, manufacture, and make every article of use, convenience, and necessity among our own people. So we shall need no commerce with the nations. I am determined to cut every thread of this kind and live free and independent, untrammeled by any of their detestable customs and practices. He recognized that even just trading with those of different values of you, of, of depending on others to be able to provide you with the things that you need, affects and works to destroy your culture and your independence, which was so vital to them because they were, you see in all of these different cultures that I've talked about, when you start to do that, they start to lose their independence. They start to lose their ability to provide for themselves and they lose their liberty. One of the most prolific uh, philosophers that the Founding Fathers looked to and quoted from is a man with a funny name, Samuel Pufendorf. He talked about the importance of political independence as well, which is what the Founding Fathers read and, and learned from to understand when they wrote the Declaration of Independence. Pufendorf states, quote, Among those which join together to form a government in a country, it is absolutely requisite that there be a perfect consent and agreement concerning the use of the means of government. If they do not agree with themselves, but are divided and separated in their opinions, they will be divided into parties and will clash. We see that in society today, even in, in, in states that are pretty you know, homogeneous on, uh, maybe they, they think that they're all conservative or states that, are, that think they're all uh, liberal. We still have a large portion of these um, societies and society in general that do not have a perfect consent and agreement concerning government. And so we see this natural law um, manifesting itself in, this, in these clashes and in this social unrest that we're seeing all over the place. They recognize this and they saw this. This is just like throwing up a ball in the air and knowing that it will fall when we mix people together that have these core differences of views on how government is used we are not a melting pot. We were never meant to be a melting pot. We were supposed to be um, in agreement on these principles. The Founding Fathers knew that if we were not in agreement, that we would lead to the clashes that we are seeing today. In fact, we look at these natural law principles in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. They are obvious. There's no debate amongst honest individuals that all men are created equal, 
but they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. God gave us our rights. That among these rights that are given to us by God are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So to pr protect these rights that God gave us, governments are formed and the governments get their rights from the people. So this is the key fundamental understanding that government gets its authority from the people. So if the people don't have the right to do something, that means they can't give that right to the government. And so if the government is doing something that doesn't have the right to do, and you know that because you don't have the right to do it, then it is acting outside of the law. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends of protecting life, liberty, and property, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish that government and to institute new government. So if government starts to go beyond its delegated authority, if government starts to, to uh, not protect your life, liberty, and property, it's your job, it's your duty. It is a natural, self-evident job and duty to alter or abolish that government. Okay, so I wanna just recap these things. It's obvious that no matter what anybody else says, that we get our rights from God, and that some of those rights are life, liberty, and property. Government was created by people to protect, not give them their rights, right? The Bill of Rights says that we have the right to bear arms. That doesn't mean that the government has to provide everyone with guns. The, the, uh, the First Amendment says that we have the, the, the government cannot infringe on our freedom of religion. That doesn't mean that the government has to steal from other people to build me a church. It just means that the government can't say you're not allowed to do that. They can't stop you from exercising your rights. They do not provide you with rights. They protect your rights, not give them to you. Next is government gets its authority, its permission to act from us, the, the, the people. So if I, can't give, if I can't do something, I can't give that power to somebody else. And again, if the government does these things, that the, does things that they're not allowed to do, no matter what, it is the job of the people to get rid of that government. And we have a right to sovereignty and independence. It's essential for our protection and for the liberty of the people. And so there was a big effort to destroy that sovereignty as we were, as a people, declared it when we moved out west and left the United States. There was pressure on the Latter-day Saints from without and from within. Look at the 1860s to see this pressure from the outside world. You had the, a governor that was imposed upon us. The United States said that the people of Utah were no longer politically independent. They were not only, they, not only were they not independent anymore, but they were not allowed to be self-determining. And they removed their ability to be able to have a governor that they chose. And the United States imposed a governor upon the people of Utah, one of those being this man, Alfred Cumming. And speaking to the legislature, the people of Utah, he said that the laws of Deseret were made in isolation without the federal government's oversight. And he says that you cannot continue, expect a continuance of that isolation, which has characterized your early history. So new relations between us must occur. I urge you to appoint committees to prepare new laws suited for your re-entrance into the national system. So that's just a, 
you go to that original document you find on, on the Tree of Liberty Society uh, com website in the membership portal to read fully what he said. That's kind of a synopsis of it. But basically, the idea is that, hey, you guys, you know, when you were independent, you wrote these laws, and that's just not going to stand. Now that we're here to make sure that what you're doing is right, uh, we're going to put together some new laws. And we see this happening on the international level as well. Internationalist in the Rockefeller family, Nelson Rockefeller, former vice president of the United States, governor of New York, wrote a book called The Future of Federalism on how to destroy local national independence and build a world federation, a world government. And so to build these steps, he explained, quote, I have long felt that the road toward the unity of free nations lay through regional confederations. In the Western Hemisphere and in the Atlantic community, perhaps eventually in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, such work towards regional unities is in fact steadily progressing. The common market in Europe is an outstanding example. This is done through removing barriers to commerce and ultimately to the gradual devising of political forms of unity. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So to build world government, to destroy national independence, we have to build these regional governments and devise these regional uh, unities to be able to destroy the independence. Now, the president of one of these globalist organizations, the Council on Foreign Relations, wrote in the magazine Foreign Policy in 2005, quote, sovereignty, the notion that governments are free to do what they want within their own territory, has provided the organizing principle of international relations for more than 350 years. 35 years from now, sovereignty will no longer be sanctuary. Powerful new forces and insidious threats will converge against it. This is most clearly being done in the trade realm. So again, this idea of building regional governments to destroy national independence over and over again. Now we see the pressure from without here in Utah, going further back into that. The first one we have here is the Edmonds-Tucker Act of 1887. And this act prohibited the practice of polygamy and punished it with a fine from $500 to $800. Now you just times that basically by 20 or 30 bucks to engage to account for inflation. And imprisonment of up to five years. It dissolved the Corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and directed the confiscation by the federal government of all church properties valued over a limit of $50,000. So just completely disenfranchised the people, uh, totally dissolved their religious organization and started to confiscate their properties. It also disenfranchised women 
who could have voted before since 1870, and it replaced local judges with federally appointed judges, again taking away the people's autonomy and local independence. A couple years later, we had the Colum Strumble Bill that uh, was introduced that, uh, to force the disenfranchisement of all Mormons, not just polygamists, both polygamists and non-polygamists alike. We also got this um, pressure from within, not just these bills and legislation and force from the outside world, but we see members of the church reacting to this pressure and writing letters to the president of the church. We have this anonymous letter, didn't want to state who he was, wrote to John Taylor in January of 1886, wherein he states, quote, why does not someone come to the front and save our people from division? Something should be done. By your course, you are not uniting the people, but you are setting one part of the polygamists who want to obey the laws of the land against those that will not obey them. You will do nothing for us. How in the name of God can you still claim to be a leader when you have ceased to be a leader, but instead become a divider? And so because the people were... Um, at odds, and the people were arguing amongst each other and wanted to, do, wanted to do different things, putting the blame on the leaders because the people were engaged in these things. And so people, you know, they wanted to put this pressure on. They wanted to see what could they do legally? What could they get the church to do? And so we see in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants, the current edition, the official Declaration 1, the manifesto is written in September of, or, or um, distributed and announced in September of 1890, um, ending the practice of plural marriage within the church. Um, this same type of a manifesto, trying to get the church to abandon this, this principle, was first introduced in 1886. And it was presented to John Taylor to decide if he wanted to adopt it or what was going to be done with it. And so he presented this manifesto to the Lord, and at which time he received a revelation given to him that he could not submit to the government. Then a couple of years later, in 1888, um, another manifesto like that from 1890 was presented to the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency. And again, this manifesto was rejected. And Joseph F. Smith kind of gives us some insight of why the council, why the Quorum of Twelve rejected that manifesto. He said, quote, there is a point when we must not yield and then make concessions or else we may expect to be whipped and scourged until we cannot help ourselves. So he was saying, you know, if we give up now, then we're just going to give up again, give up again until we're to a point where there's nothing to give up. We're just going to be stuck in a position where we have to do whatever we're told. And then in 1889, uh, Wilford Woodruff also receives a revelation uh, telling him not, again, to concede to the government. And so they're, they're seeking the will of the Lord because of this pressure, and they're being told over and over again not to. But then we have the Colum Strumble Bill to, that really kind of changes things. And so in April 1890, uh, George Q. Cannon, a member of the Twelve Apostles, goes to Washington, D.C. to talk about how can we kill this bill that will just destroy um, every member in the church's ability to be safe in the community. And um, he says, quote, President Woodruff has been praying. He thinks he sees some light. You were authorized to say that something will be done. 
And so in April of 1890, they're already considering a manifesto to end plural marriage within the church. And that he's telling, and he's telling Congress that, yes, we are going to do something. We're going to end this practice. So can you guys please kill this bill? And so they're able to, with this negotiation, they're able to kill the Colm Strumble bill to protect those members of the church that were not polygamists. And so uh, James Blaine, who was a member of the Bohemian Club and attended the Bohemian Grove, was the Secretary of State at the time. And speaking to um, George Q. Cannon's uh, son, Frank Cannon, um, said, wouldn't it be possible for your people to find some way to bring yourselves into harmony with the law and institutions of this country? We'll help you this time, but nothing permanent can be done until you get into line. So he's saying, yeah, since you guys are promising this one thing, we're able to kill this bill. But until you get to a point where you're going to do whatever we say, we're going to keep going after you, just like Joseph F. Smith said. So you can see this importance of how when we give up our political independence, our economic independence, and we give up our, the, our educational independence, that we see how we give up our liberty and how we destroy a culture to be a completely different types of people than we were before when we started. So we need to make sure that we are a threat to democracy. We are a threat to the conspiracy. And so when we look at how these things happened in Utah, how it's a case study for how it happens in every local community. Um, in the 1860s, 1870s, we have what was called the Gentile League of Utah. And the Salt Lake Tribune was a part of this, was the organ of the anti-Mormon forces. And it wrote in 18, this is in the improvement era in 1901, in 1872, a secret society, the Gentile League of Utah, was organized in Salt Lake City. Its object being to assist in their crusade and to break up Mormon theocracy. And so their whole role, their whole job of the uh, Gentile League was to destroy the political independence of the people of Utah. And further on, we read that it is a secret society uh, that was formed in 1872. And within its program, if the statements from its own people are to be relied upon, was the deliberate massacre of municipal officers and citizens. Okay, the secret society, its purpose was to massacre municipal officers and citizens. And this was not some fringe group. This was, this was an organization made up of all of the leaders that we see being imposed on the people of Utah from the federal government, from Robert Newton Baskin to um, reverends to judges. In fact, a judge, William Hayden, explained uh, that this is a federal judge, that if their program was interrupted, the streets of Salt Lake would be seen running down with blood. So again, they want to massacre, they will kill people if their programs to destroy our independence was opposed. And so we see this, this idea, this principle, where we have communists that are just in your face and they're violent, and then we have these Fabian socialists where they are slower and they are more friendly, and so they can get their, their process done one small step at a time, like the boiling frog approach. And so the Gentile League, was just that, the communist in your face. And they noticed, they said that this did not work because the saints, as they were, um, as they were opposed more forcefully, they stood together strongly. And so they realized that if they could get together and that they could just do the slow, methodical approach, they could maybe have more effect on the people of Utah to give up their independence. And so in 1883, a new organization was formed along these lines called the Alta Club. And according to its autobiography, it was formed 
for the stated purpose of allowing Gentiles, meaning non-Mormons, to build business relationships in a Mormon-dominated climate. Quote, it was just a social club which always stuck firmly to its original purpose of being social and that it never took sides on any issue. It neither advocated nor opposed public causes. And so according to their biography, just right there, that part of it, they're just a social club, not involved in anything one way or the other. We're just a place for people to get together. Well, this, the, their writings seemed a lot like what we see with the Council on Foreign Relations, where they say they're just a nonpartisan think tank, but in other writings they say that they're there to push for global government. So we want to look a little bit deeper, and we see in the uh, personal diary of uh, Heber J. Grant, where when the state of Utah was becoming, was uh, having its constitutional convention to write its state constitution to enter the Union, uh, John Henry Smith, one of the other apostles of the church, um, was sent to represent the church's uh, positions at the, and the, the church's interests at the convention. And John Henry Smith told Heber J. Grant that, quote, the Alta Club, having agreed to work against women's right to vote, and that they proposed to use their influence to defeat the Constitution if equal suffrage were made a part of it. So clearly, they do take a, a stand or a position on public causes, and they were very much involved in this. And in fact, as you read more in their own autobiography, they explain what their purpose is. And they say that the Alta Club played important roles in diminishing the bitterness of the conflict between the church and the world, the church and the government, to a point which permitted the territory to become a state and to function politically under the national system. So the people of Utah said, we're leaving because you guys are violating the law. You guys are not following the Constitution. You guys are violating our rights. You guys, so we're separating ourselves. Like the Declaration of Independence says, uh, th they recognized that natural right. And they're following that natural right that so many people in the past have done before. And we're leaving. And so it was the Alta Club's job was to make sure to um, get rid of this, this conflict between these two opposite sides and to make sure that we brought, that they brought the Latter-day Saints back into the system that they fled. And so we look at later on this role of how the conspiracy protects each other. You have Jay Bracken Lee, who was the mayor of Salt Lake in the 1960s, and uh, Cleon Skousen, who was the chief of police at the same time. Uh, Jay Bracken Lee goes to Cleon Skousen and says, you and your vice squad are not allowed to go after the Alta Club. They are off limits. They're protecting each other in their crimes. In fact, if you go to the Alpha Club website, they brag about the crimes that they were engaging at different points in history. But Kleonskousen did not do this. And in fact, there was one point where at a different club, Kleonskousen uh, broke up a gambling operation, a legal gambling operation the mayor was at, and so he was fired. And so they are a part of organized crime. And in fact, because the membership of the Alpha Club is made up of more of your uh, upper-class individuals, people in government and in business and in academia, they can't be seen kind of doing the dirty work of uh, breaking people's legs and, and getting the, you know, the, the more violent things done themselves. And so they, they, they subcontract that out to the underworld, the criminal world, the code word for uh, the, the mafia. And in the autobiography of the Alta Club, they say that um, they had a contact with the underworld with a man of uh, the nickname of Ed. And Ed's job was to be the liaison between the criminal world and the leadership of the Alta Club, the, the blue collar 
uh, criminal world versus the white collar criminal world. And, um, and so Ed, Ed dies and Ed's replacements come to the leadership of the Alta Club and say, hey, we want to continue this relationship, but if we're going to do this, we need a couple of things. We want the mayor, we want a religious leader uh, to speak at Ed's funeral. We want the mayor to be there. We want the governor of Utah to be at Ed's funeral. And so the leaders of the Alta Club say, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that for you. No, no big deal. And so now we go to uh, the 1980s, 1983, um, we have, which is 100 years after the formation of the Alta Club, um, a magazine, Town & Country Magazine, interviews a man by the name of Ted Wilson. Ted Wilson in 1983 was the mayor of Salt Lake City. And Ted Wilson admits to Town & Country Magazine that, quote, Utah has a power structure that is quite concentrated and it tends to operate behind closed doors at the Alta Club. So the Alta, so this, this power structure meets in secret at the Alta Club. And Ted Wilson didn't just go away after leaving, uh, being this, the mayor of Salt Lake. He went on to today being the executive director of UCARE and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, which are both tightly linked to United Nations Agenda 21. So he knew what he was talking about. And so the Alta Club, you know, throughout these years of, of going from a new organization, 1883, to being the power structure, or the place where the power structure meets uh, to be able to implement their agenda, they, there are some steps that they do that. So we go to the late, uh, to 1887, and Caleb West, one of these governors imposed on us by the federal government, working with the Alta Club, uh, worked to form the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce to be able to merge the people of Utah with the anti-liberty-loving people of the United States. Another gesture in the pursuit of pacification, which was supported by several Alta Club founders, was the organization of the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce. There could be no question as to the purpose of this project and anyone who participated in it was certainly on the side of liquidation of the conflict. This conflict because we were invaded by the United States and had their people imposed on us as our, as our leaders. And so this was a, a way to pacify this and to get us to accept the fact that we were remerging with the world that had oppressed us and to make ourselves adopt their culture. And so the Alta Club founders accepted places on the organizing committee of the Chamber of Commerce. But members of the church were not joining the Chamber of Commerce right off the bat. And so the uh, Chamber of Commerce and the Alta Club leaders go to uh, the leaders of ZCMI. ZCMI being formed as a way for people to be able to, by the church, as a way to be able to get the things that they need without having to go to Gentile businesses. And so that's how it started. But by this point, it was kind of the... It, when, it, when it closed, it was just like Dillard's. It was just a, a, a store in the mall. And so this was that transitionary period where the leaders of ZCMI were more interested in influence and money. And so when the Alta Club and when the chamber uh, approached them to join with them, to be an influence on the members of the church to get them to go along with this, uh, they joined on. And so members of the church, they said, okay, well, these guys are good members of the church, so it must be okay. And so they started to break down these walls and Mormons and Gentiles started working together in the Chamber of Commerce. And some of these same Mormons were proposed and accepted for membership in the Alta Club, the organization meant to get us to merge back with the world.
And so this power structure, according to Town & Country magazine by their interviews, the structure was consisted of the head of the Chamber of Commerce, the publisher of the Salt Lake Tribune, and the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This power structure meeting in secret at the Alta Club to get us to merge with the world. So now this is, that was, that's kind of an overview of some of the things that we cover in volume one. And uh, I encourage you to get a copy of Invasion Volume 1 if you don't already have a copy to be able to go into more depth and understanding of those things that I talked about, of how we got to the point of where we are today. That foundation that is laid, that we see and how it's um, applied in every state in the Union of how the conspiracy begins to implement and infiltrate itself into a local community. Now, when we get into Volume 2, we're going to show more how this conspiracy has grown and, and metastasized and become a cancer in all of our local communities. And so one of those organizations we're talking about is how this globalist organization called the Council on Foreign Relations infiltrated our local communities. So we look at World War I. It was designed as a way to be able to, as the precursor, to get us to accept world government so that we could stop these, these, this type of uh, horrific war from happening ever again. And so they introduced the League of Nations afterwards. And uh, there was a lot of people that were warning about the dangers of the League of Nations, of how it would give up that key principle of political independence. And so the League of Nations was defeated. But there was a plan. The Council on Foreign Relations was then created to help sell the people on the idea of world government, which after World War II led us to accepting the United Nations. And so one of the co-founders of the Council on Foreign Relations was a man by the name of Colonel Edward Mandel House, considered to be Wilson's brain. And he said that he wanted to build socialism as dreamed of by Karl Marx. That's the kind of individual you're dealing with, one of the founders of this organization that was founded to get the people to accept world government and to move um, the United States more and more in that direction. In fact, the Council on Relations introduced a, and published a study that said that their job and their, their, their goal was to maintain and gradually increase the authority of the United Nations. And so to be able to do that, not just on an, a national, international level, but to get people in every community across the nation to go along with this and to accept this and to get the local, uh, local people to accept this globalist idea to destroy our local political independence, an organization was formed called the American Committee on Foreign Relations. And this was formed in 1938 by the CFR. They felt it was time to create a number of nonpartisan, nonprofit committees across the country for the purpose of bringing business and professional local leaders together to discuss world events due to isolationist attitudes and emerging international conflicts. So it was, it was meant to get, to, get, to get business leaders and government leaders to get together to be able to get them to not support what they call isolation, meaning national and political independence, to merge us with this global system. So they formed these local committees all across the country, mostly in states and communities that were in favor of national and local independence. And so they formed them in, in states like, like Idaho and, and Wyoming and Utah even. And here we see the Salt Lake Committee on Foreign Relations website. And they have meetings every single month to be able to help the local government and business community get together to see how they can get the local people on board to destroy 
local and national independence. And where would they meet every single month in the state of Utah? Nowhere but the Alta Club. So we see individuals that are the leaders. This is kind of like behind the scenes. Who are the, the puppet masters behind our elected officials that are moving us away from local independence and away from national independence into an international United Nations-led government? And the organizations that they say here, we, you look at these websites at the University of Utah and at BYU, what are the local universities and their organizations that are helping to promote this with BYU and their Kennedy um, Center and their pushing of the Black Lives Matter and the Council on Foreign Relations. And we have here um, at the state's uh, own website where they uh, register businesses where the leaders of the local council on foreign relations are registered. We can see who those individuals are. And we see here we have Dean Collinwood in Salt Lake City, who is a professor at Weber State University, who has written many books on, global, on globalism and promoting globalism. Another leader at the uh, council on foreign relations, we have David Deasley. His address right there, just a public record, um, went out to his, his house to kind of see what kind of neighborhood was there. And on the way there to check things out, I found something else that was even more fascinating linked to the Council on Formulations. You see here on this property where they have these, uh, this is an individual's private residence. They have statues and supposed artwork. You look closer at this artwork, it's disgusting. It's creepy. It has body parts and it's, 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 it's gore. And they have these uh, statues uh, that have similar, eerie similarities to artwork and statues owned by John Podesta, who was a part of the Pizzagate scandals. And they're linked to um, sex trafficking and, and child trafficking. So what kind of individual owns this house? Is it just some, some random guy in a more upper class neighborhood in, in Salt Lake City? John and Marcia Price with a huge background in government, tons of different positions in government, as well as being a member of what? The Council on Foreign Relations. So who are some prominent examples of Utahns who have been members of the CFR? You have John Huntsman Jr., who was a member of the CFR, uh, right up to becoming governor of the state of Utah, as well as Garrett W. Gong. John Huntsman has strong links to the New World Order. With 1993, he joined the Council on Foreign Relations. In 1999, he starts uh, leading the United Nations Agenda uh, 21 organization, Envision Utah. 2007, he worked at supporting the Freedom Destroying Cap and Trade legislation. He also backed uh, forced healthcare mandates with Obamacare. 2008, he backed the trillion dollar bank bailouts. In 2009, he supported forcing the state to recognize sodomite marriages. 2012, he attended the Bilderberg Conference, big uh, New World Order organization. In 2015, he joined the CFR-linked uh, Atlantic Council, endorsed Mike Lee for Senate in 2015, and he was revealed in 2019 to be um, in Jeffrey Epstein's Little Black Book. So we see here Garrett W. Gong um, before uh, becoming prominent in uh, religious circles in the state of Utah. Um, he was a member in the Council on Foreign Relations. Here's their annual report from when he was uh, listed as a member, which as we see now has been really scrubbed from the internet, very difficult to find. 
And we look at some of these pro-globalist books that Gong has, has written uh, that uh, back and support the Chinese communists and the atrocities that they have committed through China and the Soviet Union, China's fourth revolution, empires and civilizations, remembering and forgetting, Russia's Bermuda Triangle, the beginning of history and the standard of civilization. And in the standard of civilization, he kind of brags about and promotes this idea that efforts are now being made to enshrine demands for a new international economic order, a new international information order, and a new international cultural order within whatever legality United Nations resolutions proffer. Okay, an economic order, we're talking about economic independence, international information order, so we've got to be able to control what people are, are, are learning and the, the, uh, the culture and the media that they're consuming, and a new international culture order being implemented by the United Nations, this world government. So let's talk about another tentacle of this Hydra beast, uh, now moving away from the Council on Foreign Relations. We have another group that has very similar, that it's connected. It's one of these tentacles of the same beast. And uh, this tentacle is called the Brotherhood of Death or Skull and Bones. And R. Thompson does a great overview of the organization this week, we look at an organization that has played a major role in American society and politics, Skull and Bones. The official story is that Skull and Bones, or The Order, was started in 1832, primarily by William Huntington Russell, with the help of Alfonso Taft as Chapter 322 of a German secret society. The speculation is that The Order was the Illuminati but no positive proof has been found that it was. Since Russell studied at the University of Berlin and Skull and Bones became known as the Brotherhood of Death, it is likely that it was part of the Totenbund, or Order of Death, itself a descendant of the Illuminati. A telling clue of their origin, even though circumstantial, is the use of the term the Order, just as the Illuminati was known. The other co-founder of Skull and Bones, Alfonso Taft, played out a more overt influence on America by the positions he held. He became the Secretary of War and the Attorney General in the Grant Administration. He ran for governor of Ohio but lost the race over his desire to see the Bible eliminated from the public schools. Of course, Taft's son, William Howard Taft, who was also a member of Skull and Bones, became president. He played the leading role in the establishment of the National Chamber of Commerce, which today plays a dominant role in promoting foreign entanglements under the guise of free trade, all of which is using patient gradualism to destroy American sovereignty. So the Brotherhood of Death not, didn't cover, wasn't covered by Art Thompson, but we learned from other investigations. Anthony Sutton's book on Skull and Bones is a perfect, is a fantastic read for you to be able to better understand more about the satanic connections and uh, influences of Skull and Bones. And uh, we learned in that book what their rituals are. And the Brotherhood of Death rituals, um, they're very connected to, to death and to um, and to Satan, one of the things that they do is they lie naked in a coffin, confessing to another bonesman uh, the things that they feel like that, that they've done wrong, and so that that can be held against them uh, with the organization. And so that was formed at Yale, as, as R. Thompson explained. Uh, but one of the members at, of Yale's Skull and Bones uh, 
in 1910 came to the state of Utah. And we discovered there's a second chapter of Skull and Bones at the University of Utah formed by this man. And uh, we see here that it was uh, from their yearbook at the University of Utah that their membership, just like at Yale, was published for many years. It is no longer published and is kept secret uh, today at both Yale and the University of Utah. And uh, we see here modeled is a, a sweater that uh, a member of Skull and Bones at the University of Utah would have worn. And in the yearbook, this very eerie and, and very revealing um, explanation of the Skull and Bones uh, here at Utah, and now its connection to uh, Yale is very clear. So the society is a secret one, and their ways are deep and mysterious. And they, they are the ones proning what we see today, this infanticide that's being promoted and being popular today. But the yearbook at the University of Utah brags, says the skull and bones makes us believe in infanticide, the murder of infants. Skull and bones makes us believe in the murder of infants. And another article at the uh, at, at a University of Utah um, newspaper talks about a man by the name of Tom Morrow uh, being initiated and the things that happened to him in the initiation at the Utah Skull and Bones led him to temporary insanity. And because of his actions, he was arrested and he was detained by the police to protect himself and others because of this temporary insanity. And he did damage to property. And so the president of the University of Utah to wouldn't happen to anybody else causing damage to property, promises the funds and the resources of the university to cover the cost of anything that uh, this initiate did while under um, his insanity uh, after the induction into Skull and Bones. So in 2015 and 2018, a small group of members of Skull and Bones met with the University of Utah's newspaper wearing these outfits that you see them wearing in the initiation at the Yale Skull and Bones. Um, uh, videos have been released and snuck out uh, filming these people without their knowledge wearing these same outfits. Now there are high profile members of Skull and Bones here in the state of Utah. One of them is Senator Robert F. Bennett. Another one is Robert D. Hales. Uh, we see here at the University of Utah yearbook listing Robert Hales as a member of Skull and Bones. And this article from their student newspaper in 1954 says that he wasn't just a member of Skull and Bones, but that he was a leader of the organization. And there's another organization that is linked to Skull and Bones at the University of Utah called Owl and Key. And here from the yearbook, it says members of Skull and Bones, junior men's honorary, automatically become Owl and Key members with others who seem worthy also being tapped. So they're tapped at the University of Utah, just like they're tapped at Yale. And so we see here that Owl and Key is the, is the next step up. It's the next level uh, higher in this conspiratorial organization above Skull and Bones. This article out of the university newspaper says members of Skull and Bones automatically become Owl and Key members and will be initiated. Uh, we look at another article at the University of Utah, talks about their ungodly costumes and requirements to become a member of Skull and Bones. These members of Skull and Bones are called goats, which is very interesting because the goat is the symbol used for Baphomet or Satan. We also see with Owl and Key, which is very interesting, is it is also a similar uh, a symbol that is used by the Bohemian Club and the Bohemian Grove. 
So the scroll and key also we see is a, another Yale secret society. And key is something that's also used by Allen Key, this organization that we see. Um, here is the secret society that is higher than Skull and Bones at the University of Utah. And now with the University of Utah and Allen Key and Skull and Bones, uh, this article at their school newspaper says the initiation consists in following out a series of foolish and embarrassing stunts laid out by the Owl and Key Club, made up of last year's members of the Skull and Bones Club. So the initiation into the organization is something that is concocted by the Owl and Key members. This is what led to one of their members going insane after, after fulfilling this initiation. So that Skull and Bones initiation says, truly Owl and Key members have touched the depths and soared to the heights of their imagination incoming aspirants to the Skull and Bones, that gateway to the mysterious Alan Key can breathe comfortably knowing that what mortal has endured, mortal can endure. Another article at the university paper uh, talks about Sky B, which is another nickname for Skull and Bones, electees await induction ceremony. 12 candidates will complete goathood, again, the link to goats, uh, Skull and Bones on Thursday. They will be inducted into the organization by members of Owl and key. New Sky B will feat parent clan. So linking Owl and Key again to Skull and Bones. So we have Russell Nelson who's listed as a member of um, Owl and Key and in Russell M. Nelson's autobiography he talks about being a member of Skull and Bones and so he was a member of both. Another member uh, was R Marvin J. Ashton, Wallace R. Bennett, U.S. Senator, Robert F. Bennett, also a Senator, Frank Moss, another Senator. Just like with Skull and Bones, these people become and lead into prominent positions of power. Robert D. Hales, Hugh W. Pinnock, LDS Area 70 for 23 years, Chairman of fellow Bonesman Wallace R. Bennett uh, Senate campaign. So they work together and they support each other. Uh, Bruce Jenkins, who is a federal judge and a U.S. Senator. Vernon Romney, who is the Attorney General. And John Thomas Green, who is a federal judge. And again, Russell M. Nelson of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So now we have the Council on Formulations. We have Skull and Bones. And there's another tentacle to this beast called the Alfalfa Club, which is different than the Alta Club. And Mitt Romney is tied to this alfalfa club. Mainstream corporate news, KSL, has a main headline about this secret society, the alfalfa club, saying Romney is president of a secret society in Washington. Mitt Romney has been named the president of the alfalfa club. He has been a member of the secret society, which includes politicians, business leaders, and billionaires since 2015. So this is in 2019. Romney takes over from another Massachusetts politician, John Kerry, who was a member of Skull and Bones. So what is the Alfalfa Club? Very difficult to find really any information. So just kind of looking at what, what does Wikipedia say about the Alfalfa Club? See if we can find some sources, do some internet searches to find out who, what is the Alfalfa Club? So if you look at this, this says their only purpose of the Alfalfa Club was to celebrate the birthday of a Confederate general. A Confederate general, okay? But Obama attended this celebration, supposedly, of a Confederate general. So just once a year, they're, they're, we're going to make headline news because Mitt Romney and, and John Kerry are the head of an organization that throws a party for a Confederate general every single year, attended by uh, black people celebrating um, the birthday of this Confederate general. 
didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so just on the surface, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Why would this be a big deal? Why would it be a secret society if we know that their whole purpose is just for a birthday party? Why? How is it a secret society if that's what it's really all about? If you look at it, they're, they're limited to elites in government, academia, and business. The organization is by invitation only. So the Skull and Bones member, uh, John Kerry, was invited to be a member. Uh, Mitt Romney was invited to be a member. And membership is limited to 200 members at a time. Among these members, we have people like Joe Biden, uh, Bush Sr. and Jr., Nelson Rockefeller, which I mentioned earlier, Mike Pompeo, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, Henry Kissinger, Donald Rumsfeld, Orrin Hatch, Chuck Schumer, Mike Bloomberg, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Bill Marriott, the list goes on and on. And so new members can only come on when an old member dies. This is, this is an organization you don't apply to, uh, to be a part of. You get, you get called. And so it's a secret society, very limited membership. Is it really just about celebrating a Confederate general's birthday? I, don't, I didn't think so. And so, uh, but I did find one article online that was referencing their biography, their autobiography about what, what their history was, what they were all about. But the autobiography wasn't available anywhere. It wasn't on archive, wasn't available to buy on any kind of bookstore website for any price. Um, but we had one of our members of the Tree of Liberty Society find that, that book, there was a library, um, I think it was in Pennsylvania, a university library that had a copy. And so we were able to get a copy of the book and to be able to see what it is that they believe about themselves. What is this secret society that no, none of these articles talked about or um, about what they really believed about themselves? They believe that they are the oldest club in existence. They, they date back all the way to ancient Egypt and that it has been the power behind the throne throughout time. They say about themselves that, and this is written during the days of Colonel Edward Mandel House, that the Alfalfa Club was the Edward Mandel House of olden days. So meaning that they were the power behind the throne. So they're doing two things there. They're admitting that Mandel House was the power behind the throne and that that's what they believe that they are. They're the power behind the throne, that they are the puppet masters of those that we believe are actually in charge. Their documents were what many of the major wars throughout history were about. And whomever had control won the wars. So they believe that these wars that have been fought throughout time were actually about gaining control of the Alfalfa Club's documents. These secrets that they have, the secret history, the secret, no secret knowledge that they have that, that gives them power. And that they put into place the, men the leaders of ancient societies all over the world throughout time. And that their records are what Germany when this book was, was written, was fighting out for during World War I to gain power. You look here, right here in the book, it says that it was the Colonel Edward Mendel House of olden days. So we have to understand this conspiracy that we've been talking about. We see these people that are Republicans and Democrats. If we are keep on fighting the way that we're told to fight, that we have to get our party in there to be able to stop the other party from doing what they're doing, we're just going to continue on losing our liberty, increasing the power of this international power, uh, authority and the United Nations and decreasing our national and local independence. We have to understand this conspiracy so that evil may be done away. It is not just good enough to be the most informed person in the concentration camp. I don't want to be the guy just going around saying when all this with, you know, tyranny is fully implemented, telling everybody, I told you so. 
we are still in the concentration camp, but that happens. We have to use this knowledge to be able to take effective action to restore lost liberty. As the Apostle James states, that we have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if we do that, then we are deceiving our own selves. The founding fathers were in a very similar situation that we face today with a tyrannical government increasing its power and decreasing the independence of the people every single day. Samuel Adams got together with eight of his friends and they, he formed an organization called the Loyal Nine, which later on became the Committees of Safety and the Sons of Liberty. And in a letter that was sent to him uh, from, from a fellow patriot, he was explaining that the people of the, their time, he wanted to help them understand the principles of liberty, not just the issues. They wanted to understand principles so that when a new issue came up, they knew if it was bad or good without being told. They, they, under, they could identify it themselves, but other patriots were complaining to him, saying that, no, that's going to take too long. There's, we can't do that, and that the people are dead, and that the dead cannot be raised without a miracle. But Samuel Adams said, no, we have to teach them the principles so that they can be self-governing. And his reply was that all are not dead, and where there is a spark of patriotic fire, we will rekindle it. So to be able to rekindle this, we have to understand ourselves five fundamental principles. The first principle being that culture changes are more important than legal changes. Before all of these different things are implemented, we are taught to accept them culturally first. The second is that we have to focus on the arsonist and avoid fires when possible. If we're out there saying, okay, yes, abortion, we got to stop abortion, we got to stop taxes. These are the things we got to stop. And we're ignoring the fact that there is somebody starting these fires there is going to be an infinite amount of star fires that we will always be fighting. We have to go after the arsonist. Focus on that. Don't get distracted. Don't play the game of whack-a-mole where we're just going after each thing. We have to focus on the fact that there is an arsonist. Our combined efforts should move us forward restoring the culture, economic, political, and educational independence, and neutralizing the arsonist. What are we for? What are we against? What is the thing that's stopping what we're for? And we have to go on the offense. We can't just say, okay, we're just going to wait for them to come after us and, and stop the each next thing that comes on, waiting for the legislature session and say, oh, there's a new bill coming along. We need to go on the offense saying, all of these things you've done before that we've kind of become used to, we're not accepting anymore. They're illegal. We're going on the offense. We're not doing that anymore. We're not going along with it anymore. We understand who you are. We understand what organizations you're a part of, what their goals are, and we're not listening to you anymore. You are illegitimate. You are violating your oath of office. You are violating our life, liberty, and property. And so you are illegitimate, and it is our job to ignore you and to set up a government that will protect our life, liberty, and property. And then we have to unite with others. We cannot be lone rangers saying, I'm an independent person. We, we have to find those people to protect our life, liberty, and property that we can gather together with to be able to go on the offensive and be effective in preserving lost liberty. We have to change our paradigm. Too often today, we are stuck on this 50 to 100 year idea that government comes first, that to protect our rights, we have to beg the government for it. We have to vote for the right guy. Otherwise, we won't have our liberty, even though we've only got you know, two votes out of 100 in the Senate. And we've got, you know, and we've got four votes out of 435 in the House. But uh, if we vote hard enough and often enough, we're going to get our rights back. No, it doesn't make any sense. They're not ignorant. They know what they're doing and they're doing it on purpose. 
calling the media. They're a part of this. They're not going to expose anything real going on uh, to be able to help the people restore lost liberty. Suing the government, another just insane idea that makes no logical sense. You're not going to go to a conspiracy and say, hey, this other member of your conspiracy is violating my rights. What do you think? It, it makes no sense. It's a waste of time, resources, and effort. These are all blasphemous as well, because they're saying that your rights don't exist. You can't exercise your rights unless someone else gives them to you. It is self-evident, as the Declaration of Independence says, that our rights come from God. And so if we look to government as the uh, dispenser of rights, we're saying we don't believe our rights come from God. But if we do believe that fact, that self-evident fact that our rights come from God, we will not look to others to grant us the rights that God already gave us. We will exercise those rights. We will claim and use our rights, this permission that God has already given us, nullifying the illegal actions of government and defend those rights if challenged through building understanding, gathering people together that are of like mind that can defend each other and assert our God-given rights. If we do not change this paradigm, we will continue to lose. Let me give you an example that happened in the 1840s to a man by the name of Joseph Smith. He was a prisoner of a local sheriff. And he talked, he said that we, Sheriff Reynolds and Joseph Smith, started for Ottawa and stopped for the night. The sheriff of Lee County came to my assistance and slept by me that night. And in the morning, certain men wished to see me, but I was not allowed to see them. The news of my arrival had hastily circulated about the neighborhood. And very early in the morning, the largest room in the hotel was filled with citizens who were anxious to hear me preach and requested me to address them. So Joseph Smith is the prisoner of the sheriff. He's going through this town, and the people in the town wanted to hear him speak. Sheriff, the sheriff, pointing to Joseph, said, I wish you to understand this man is my prisoner, and I want you should disperse. You must not gather here in this way. And then, upon which an aged gentleman who was lame, so had a bum leg and carried a large hickory walking stick, advanced towards the sheriff, bringing his hickory upon the floor and said, you damned infernal puke. We'll learn you to come here and interrupt gentlemen. Sit down there, pointing to a very low chair, and sit still. Don't open your head until General Smith gets through talking. You cannot kidnap men here if you do in Missouri. And if you attempt it here, there's a committee in this grove that will sit on your case. And sir, it is the highest tribunal in the United States. As from its decision, there is no appeal. And he exercised his rights. He didn't say, we just need to wait for the next election. We can elect the sheriff that's going to give us our rights. He claimed his rights. He, he, he went against the sheriff and said, no, you're not allowed to do what you're doing. And we're going to stop you right here, right now. What did the sheriff do? He actually, because of the culture, the understanding of the people, knew who this man was. And the sheriff, no doubt aware of that, per, of, that that person addressing him was the head of a committee who had prevented the settlers on the public domain from being imposed upon by land speculators, sat down in silence while I addressed the assembly for an hour and a half. They did not put up with the illegal actions of government. They asserted their rights and they moved forward because they knew that their rights came from God. We, the people, taking our rights back is the only solution. There are some people out there that think well, things just got to get worse until, you know, until the Savior can come and, and fix this problem. 
I want you to know that that's not the case. That is a lie designed to get good Christians out of the battle, to get you silenced, to allow evil to continue unchallenged. John Taylor explained, but if Zion is never built, the Lord will never come for he must have a people and a place to come to. We have to have a people that are building Zion, people that will not allow the conspiracy to be among them, people that will stand up and say, no, we are politically independent. We are not going to put up with the illegal actions of an illegal government. We are not going to mix ourselves. We are not going to be dependent on others for our economic prosperity. We're not going to allow others to educate our children. We are going to build a free and independent society. And that will be a people that the Lord can return to. We need to take back that lost ground. So we encourage you to join with us to help us take back that lost ground by becoming a member of Tree of Liberty Society. Every single week we gather together online and we have weekly training where we go over uh, more in depth an issue on the principles of liberty or um, something the conspiracy, uh, better understand the conspiracy or what they're up to today and then what we need to be doing about it. We have a membership portal where our trainings are recorded and put so you can watch um, uh, previous trainings, as well as key documents that we have in our books, as well as uh, other important research material to build your understanding. Being a member of the Tree of Liberty Society means you're supporting independent journalism and a network of activists that will take back lost liberty. If you want to support this, this we, we, we water those things that we want to grow. And by, by becoming a member and a supporter of Tree of Liberty Society, you're saying you want the Tree of Liberty Society to grow. So where do you start? We encourage you to go to treeoflibertysociety.com and click on that learn button. And in the uh, learn section of the Tree of Liberty website, uh, there are areas where we have focused materials on principles like agency, the conspiracy, natural law, and so on, to be able to you click on that section, and we have videos and books and audio things you can download to listen to, to help you to better understand those principles. So build your own understanding. Go to Tree of Liberty Society and become a member today. Be the worst global citizen you can be and support national and local independence. Again, please go to treeoflibertysociety.com today and become a member. I'm Ben McClintock from the Tree of Liberty Society, and I hope to see you soon.